Hey everybody, welcome back to Haz Chats, where we're chatting about hazards, technology, and all the human stuff in between. This show, we're returning back to our quest. And that quest is when we're making technology, what are the big decision points that are coming along the path that we as technology creators should be aware of and making good decisions at? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So last episode, we went over the first two points in our Hazadapt quest. The first was kind of our intentions and our goals. So basically where our mindset is when we're creating this project and what we're hoping to accomplish. And our second point of the quest, we are focusing on the creation of our project. So thinking about who is building the project and how are we building it and thinking about how we test, what's our development cycle and how do we make this thing work? That's right. Catching all those blind spots and our biases, making sure that our product is as inclusive uh, as possible. And now that we know how to create this, we need to figure out how we're going to implement it and then continue to be powerfully sustainable with our tech. Let's chat about it. So before we jump into the really heavy stuff, want to start off with kind of a fun opener. Josh, today's a really special day for you because you just had your final final. Yes, I'm finally uh, done. Final, final, final. Yeah. (laughs) So for anyone, you know, who's been in this point where you have finished all of your classes all the way to the very end, and all that's left to do is get the grades and walk the stage. Josh, what does this feel like right now? Describe it for our listeners. Yes, I'm very tired. Uh, It's great, though. It's a little bit strange just because I, I had very little time actually like on campus, sort of like the college experience because I went to I did two years of community college living at home uh, with my parents yeah Yeah, which was actually a really great experience for me and then I did two terms on OSU campus and then COVID happened so I basically had like two normal terms out of my like four years plus one term experience Um, so being done it feels it's, it feels great, and I do feel like I've learned a bunch, and I'm super excited, but it almost feels like I, I uh, skipped a lot just in terms of, like, being on campus and being a student. Um, but, yeah, I'm so excited to move on to the next phase of life. It's super exciting. Yay. Well, we're proud of you, and I hope you get some good time to just rest and deep rest <laughs> after all of this hard work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to um, still be around and stuff, but I'm definitely going to... I'm going to lay down for a bit and, like, pass out. Yeah, I'm super I'm super excited. Watch some Seinfeld. I'm going to watch some Seinfeld. <laughs> well, and this is that, you know, shout out to all of our students out there. Good luck on finals. You're going to rock them. And take some time to rest afterward. Congratulations to everybody wrapping up their term. And good luck to all the teachers. We're doing all the grading. <laughs> we got this. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's jump in. So, Let's talk about the third decision point on our quest. This is the implementation. And this is not only have you created your product, but now you actually have to get it out to your users. When you talk about getting to your users, we're also thinking through the people that will be using it day to day, but then the people that may be gatekeepers to those people. And the example I wanna bring in here of a gatekeeper would be an emergency manager we're creating a safety product for the community. And the community relies on the majority of their safety information 
from an emergency manager. It makes sense then that we would want to make sure our product is something that an emergency manager would feel comfortable sharing with their community and proud to share with their community. Yeah, the emergency manager is kind of like a good gatekeeper because I think a lot of times I just react negatively to the word gatekeeper. Yeah. But when we're talking about working with the public, it's kind of like a volatile substance and you have to be really careful. And so you really want someone to be checking things before they're released. And that's a really important role for an emergency manager to have, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's a huge job. Nobody can do it everything all at once. And there's usually a team of one or two, but some communities it's only one. Right. So our goal was to not put any more stress or extra burden of work on them. Our goal was to support their mission, uh, but first and foremost, support the community. So we have to find balance and find out what everybody needs. And that's what led us into doing our homework. So that's doing the research on what are the problems in this field and what have the voices before us been saying. And like we identified in the very first intentions, we ought to know who our audience is. And for us at HazardApp, you know, a reminder, we're between the community, that's the public, to authorities, emergency authorities, and businesses. So we got to get out to all of them. And that requires advertisement, but even more so relationship building. And we've been doing this from the beginning, actually going out to your community and asking, what do you need? Yeah. No, it's super exciting because not only do we have the entire public as our audience when we're creating this product, but we also are creating this product with emergency managers, emergency managers in the area and worldwide. <laughs> and it's really exciting because we get to have really direct feedback on our implementation of the product and we get to see um, like X feature was really great. Y feature needs these two things done and Z feature not, you know, want to change it or, or something. So let's talk about what that looks like, because if you've never worked with a very busy person outside of the company to try to get feedback, it can be rough. But when you have people that, one, need their pain points solved and, you know, you're sitting here saying, hey, teach us what you need. Help us make the best product for you. They're typically incredibly receptive. And in order to start this, uh, I actually started making a relationship with our local emergency managers with OSU before even starting HazardApp. One I had this idea and I wanted to ask them, well, okay, am I on track? Am I on the right path? And that took setting up a meeting. So sending an email saying, hi, this, I'm Jenny. This is what I'm doing. I've got this big idea. Can I, can I just have 15 minutes to talk with you about this? And again, excellent receptiveness. Uh, but, you know, it's not just emergency managers that are using this, right? They are the people serving, you know, the public. So we're helping them do their job. And in order for them to do their job well, their tools need to meet the public's needs. So they've got a great idea on that, but we do have to expand that horizon and really get the public feedback. And there's a lot of ways that we can do that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's a lot of things we can do to get really great public feedback, which we kind of touched on uh, last episode. But I think there's two aspects to this when we think about public feedback, and we really want to do both of them right. So one of them is actually like collecting the feedback. So do we have the ability to actually receive responses because if maybe we care about the responses but we're only getting a fraction of them or we're not getting any then we don't know where we need to work on in our product so 
we've done a lot of like design meetings and talking about how we want to implement like feedback features in our app. So that's going really well. And then the second point is um, actually responding to feedback because there's a lot of uh, apps or companies or websites that have feedback features that go nowhere and they uh, are never seen again. So definitely when we think about feedback, our goal should absolutely to be quick and responsive and transparent. Yeah, transparent. Absolutely. Because we can't have a successful product if we're not um, listening to feedback because our audience is everyone. And so our goal is to account for their needs. So it's in our interest specifically to be really attentive to feedback and really look at where people are struggling, if it's in the app, or where people feel that needs haven't been met. Like, that's all really, really big stuff mm-hmm. for us. So we're at this decision point of implementation. Think of it less of like a launch, we're out there, that's it, right? When we're thinking about implementation, we're really thinking about a continual process of improvement and relationship building with our users, both the emergency management and the public side and eventually the business side as well, where we're continually learning and growing together. Um, So that brings us to this whole idea of we're a small startup and getting to know everybody and everybody's need is going to take time. And if you've got limited means, that could take even longer time. So if you're in the startup realm like us and you're thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, (laughs) we have limited means. Where do we even start and now what? Yeah, it's definitely um, a concern for small development companies more than it is for really big ones because huge companies that have existing apps, like for one, their features or their main features are done. And they have a lot more resources to work on accessibility. So we see a lot of great accessibility features in like really big social media apps and really big websites because they have been around and they have the time to work on these things. And when we think about being a small development company, it is a it's a balance that we have to find because we have limited time and we have limited resources. So we can't um, just create every accessibility feature at the same time. We have to think about what we want to prioritize and how much time it's going to take. Like we've got languages set up already, which is really exciting. And we are looking towards more accessibility features. But yeah, it's super, super exciting. So I wanted to triple check our language count right now. So right now we are at English, Spanish, Japanese, French, Russian, German, and Mandarin. Yeah, that's seven. That's the seven. And we're definitely going to have more. But if you don't know this, let me let me give you a little inside uh, inside information. Getting your language or your content translated to culturally competent translation is very expensive. And especially if you've got a lot of content like we do. Now, we used a really awesome tool uh, with artificial intelligent translation. Now, is it 100% culturally competent? No, of course not, right? Nothing can give you that besides a human right now at this point with tech. But what we can do is we translated, artificial artificial intelligence translated uh, that content, and then we had a human look at it, a native speaker, and say, okay, if you're reading this, does this still give you the right information? Is it confusing or is it still understandable? And or is this translation so badly done that it is incorrect? 
And when our native, you know, friends and family and people that we know that speak these languages reviewed our translation of that, each of these languages got a passing grade of this is understandable. Sure, there's some awkward parts, but for the most part, there's nothing like or, no, there's nothing in here that is wrong. Not just for the most part, there is nothing in here that's wrong um, as created by translation. And if any of the other languages, um, for instance, Korean actually didn't pass the test, you yeah. know, yeah. so that we haven't posted that language yet. Um, and we're still looking for people to also help verify further languages, for instance, Portuguese, Haitian Creole, um, a whole lot of other languages as well. So if that's interesting to you, call us. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's one of the things that we have to worry about. And we kind of have more accountability there than some uh, other like products or platforms. For example, when we think about Twitter, they don't have any problem doing just like auto translate their tweets because one, there's so many of them spewing out constantly that they couldn't, you know, manually translate them anyway. But also the uh, the risk of a poor translation is very, very low yeah. because there's not a lot of critical information that's going through Twitter. And if it is, it's going to be other places. Um, but when we, th when we think about our hazard content, we really need to be careful that when we're translating things, we're translating them correctly because hazard contents have very specific information. And that's one of the things that we're really focusing on is making sure that that yeah, language content is up to par for sure. Do you want to know what it was that the wrong thing in the Korean translation that what got us? What was the wrong thing in the Korean translation? It was talking about evacuation. Oh, yeah. And the translation was talking about getting your pets out during evacuation. And the best thing you can do is, you know, get your pet inside their like pet crate, you know, get them in the car, bounce. Yeah. The translation ended up coming into, instead of putting it in a pet crate, put your animal in a box. Mm. Yeah. And that yeah. <laughs> could potentially lead to pet suffocation. So, um, you know, that would be one of those things that, you know, a native speaker could catch and be like, oh, we don't mean box here. We mean crate, breathable, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's an example of how we could use this and move fast and say, well, hey, at least it's translated. And sure, most people understand that you don't want to put your animal in a box. But we have to also remember our users, if they're accessing this information in an emergency, by that nature, their cognitive processing level, how they absorb information is at a much lower rate because they're scared, they're panicked, um, and they've got a lot of things going on in that moment. So we have to be as precise and as crystal clear as possible. Yeah, your brain's gonna be really busy and you're going to perceive um, things like our hazard content as um, like an authority where you see it and you go, that's what they said and I'm just gonna follow it because I'm trying to get out of here. So yeah, like the wording is very, very uh, specific and we need to really, really focus that on other languages because little differences in how words are interpreted by most people are things that um, auto-translate features are not gonna catch. So the bottom line here for anybody starting this quest if you're in this moment of implementation, think of it less of like a launch, we're out there, that's it, right? When we're thinking about implementation, we're really thinking about a continual process of improvement and relationship building with our users. Make friends, make relationships, and be super sensitive to their feedback. Be willing to take it in and also be willing to say, you know what, we got to go back to the drawing board with this one or we can't release this.
because even though, you know, it may, you know, right now we don't really have, you know, thousands of users yet using our app, right? Um, and the chance of someone actually taking that reading box and harming their animal, while it's still small, it's still there. Yeah. And yeah, we sure. in good conscience, you know, if we've made a decision to not cause harm, that is part of the decision of saying, okay, nope, Korean doesn't go out right now. We'll have to wait till Korean has a fully human uh, human, <laughs> give a translation on that. So if you're concerned about we've got limited means uh, like we do here and we can't afford full human translation, find what you can do. That is the next best thing. Do as much as you can, but, you know, go easy on yourself. This is a journey. It's going to take time. Breaking news. Very important. Safety hazard. In your area. Coming up. It's Christmas. In one survey, 71% uh, reported that they had been injured while opening packages. This is very important because uh, Christmas is coming up and packages shall be aplenty. That's true. And this is something we just heard about called wrapping rage, where people are getting injured and having to actually go to the ER. And I don't mean to laugh. It, it's more just like shocking. But, you know, thousands of people every year have to actually go to the emergency room because of injuries sustained while opening packages. Yeah. Well, I'd be uh, comfortable laughing a little bit. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> only only we laugh along with you because no one was anticipating that. Uh, but I'm going to tell you what, though, there's those those plastic clamshell uh, really hard um, packaging thing. I mean, that can do some damage. Yeah. If you start ripping into it with some force. Here's the thing. If you experience uh, rage while opening a present, I think you should just sit down, take a break and. Uh, no one should, no one should experience rage um, opening uh, a present. That's a really descriptive word, and I can say with confidence that I have never experienced any kind of rage. I may have experienced frustration, but if you feel that uh, you're opening a present, maybe it's in a clamshell wrapper, or maybe they the company didn't correctly perforate their bag and you're experiencing some troubles um just take a break do a lap sit down have some water okay the the holidays we wish to be a pleasant experience so if you experience rage uh yeah just uh just calm down a little bit absolutely so a couple other tips that can help you uh as you are enjoying the holiday gift giving uh one if you must use a knife or another sharp object cut away from your body. If you have to use scissors, use ones with blunt tips, uh, especially when dealing with kids. You can also wear protective gloves, especially if you've got a lot of wrapping to get through. Yeah, that's uh, a great one. I want to I want to touch on that one for a little bit. Uh, uh, wear gloves. Just show up to Christmas with some gloves on. And if your family or friends bring up that you're wearing protective gloves at Christmas, cite them your sources. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got a Wikipedia page that is uh, reporting that about 6,500 emergency room visits in 2004. Yeah, and we're not just sorting this from a Wikipedia page. There actually was uh, multiple safety consumer reports that have been dated as far back as, you know, 2004, 2009. And uh, Pennsylvania Medicine has also documented this high incidence of wrapping rage ER visits. Maybe a great gift, the gift of gloves. 
So open with that one. <laughs> the gift uh, don't wrap it, though, because if you experienced wrapping rage while you're opening your protective rage gloves, um, <laughs> that would be unfortunate. So besides the gloves, avoid opening tough-to-open packages in a crowded area. You know, give yourself some space. And... Number five is don't use your legs to keep the product stable. There's a lot of, you know, arteries and vessels in there. You know, one good slip and then you're bleeding out on Christmas and nobody needs to have that. Yeah, this is one that I'm going to have to sit with for a bit because the the leg grip is uh, – that's like my specialty in terms of present opening. So that's one that I'm going to have to think about a little bit. Um, I've been putting myself at risk and, and others at risk. It's true. So think about – uh, protective gloves. Maybe think about some kind of protective lap device. Ooh, like a blanket? Yeah, maybe you could de- devise some kind of hazmat style suit. Ooh. And, or maybe a chainmail. Oh. Apron? A chainmail apron. I like that. Give the gift of safe present wrapping and give the gift of maybe a, a meditation before present opening just to keep rage levels uh to a minimum this has been your holiday hazard special news report and our final decision point along this quest is your impact how are you planning for the impact that you intend to have and how are you planning for the impact you may have that you weren't planning for there's a quote that's important here intention does not equal outcome And it's important that not only you're aware of what you intend to do, but also what to do if you see something harmful in your impact. And that kind of leads us into, you know, once we've implemented this, we've got to keep it going. Yeah. We got to make money to keep the lights on. Yeah. And you have a powerful product and something that has a bunch of value, not just one person or a couple people on the team can actually reap the rewards of that value. Tons of people can. So when we're thinking about being sustainable, we have to think about how we're making money to keep the lights on, how we're making money to keep innovation going, how we're making money to make sure our team has a minimum thriving wage and healthcare benefits and is able to put themselves joyfully into work and not have to compromise their work-life balance to do this work. And our community, as we're implementing and creating money and funds from this, how are we generating wealth into our community? And if you're thinking to yourself, well, why why is the wealth of my community, why should that be any kind of uh, factor or uh, goal point for the company's finances? And the reason is, is that you benefited from the community before you were ever a business. You know, before Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates were the tech gods that they are, and even now, they still benefit from our public safety system, the laws and traffic safety, our water and our you know waste system, right? So think of it as a return to what boosted you, what g- helped give you a start into your ability to create this. There's a big responsibility in helping others do that and helping boost the system that boosted you. Yeah, there's like so many ways that we can kind of approach and think about our impact when we're designing a product. And it's very important that we do all of them. So we, we have like a lot of, I would say like proactive, 
strategies when we think about impact. So anytime we kind of reach design crossroads, we're doing a lot of forward thinking about what are the potential harms, what are the potential benefits, kind of weighing out what we think, like what's the worst case scenario? If this goes as poorly as possible, how bad is it? Um, and then how likely do we think that is? All these sorts of questions. Um, but you definitely brought up a great point about um, your intention versus outcome. And there's another kind of time when we're really lucky to be where we are in terms of like development space, because when you think about like 30 years ago, you'd have a product release maybe like once a year or uh, less. So we get to release updates whenever we want. So when we have critical problems, we can like hot fix in a day or a week, or we can release updates uh, every month. So we have a really great ability to react to impact or react to possible like harm or problems way faster because of just like the state of kind of tech de development right now. We can we can adapt really, really easily. Yeah. And you just mentioned so many important points. Let's break it down a little bit. So when we're talking about our impact and how we are catching those harms, there's a couple things that, you know, based on the time frame of how open and available is your technology. Josh was mentioning having it out and released. And then, you know, sometimes you find out that your impact isn't great retroactively, meaning somebody came to you and said, hey, when I used this, there was a harm, there was a problem. So that retroactive feedback is part of the name of the game. You're always going to get feedback from your users saying, hey, you know, we can fix this. And that's good. We want that. But the more critical stage, especially for us as, you know, we're developing technology is before we release. And we talked about this before um, in multiple decision points in our creation. How are we testing this in our community centeredness and in the you know point we were just talking about previously with implementation? How are we getting that critical feedback before we just release it and unleash it to the masses? So there needs to be those multiple points of checking. You know, how is this working? Is it creating the impact we want? And then you're going to have to do some hypothesis and well-documented, you know, researched uh, hypothesis of how your product is going to make impact. And that comes from looking at others in the field, you know, what's gone right, what's gone wrong, uh, reading research about how there might be potentials for other things to, you know, coincide with this impact that you weren't intending. For instance, with Facebook, they are a platform that wants to create a connection and help people communicate, which on the surface sounds great. That's what we want. Uh, and what they weren't in originally anticipating was how people could use this in, you know, for harm. And we're actually, there's a big headline out right now that Rohingya Muslims are holding uh, Facebook accountable and suing them for the role that Facebook's communication and algorithm in boosting hate speech actually caused harm in promoting a genocide and mass movement of Rohingyas that were pushed out of their Cox Bazaar you know, area into Myanmar. Yeah. Yeah. D no, definitely. There's like the proactive impact, like measuring is really uh, half the battle. So like we're doing as much as we can before things get released. Like uh, we have this great gender mag system, which is sort of like an additional audit on our features, like outside of just bug fixes and like usability problems. We're thinking about 
how are users with different ability levels going to approach this or different like cognitive thinking styles going to approach this. And so that's a really great way for us to sort of like estimate like design problems and possible impacts before release because we don't want the public to be the guinea pig, right? We want to do as much internal testing as possible and release features with confidence. And there's no way to be entirely certain that a new feature or a new product is going to be, or is going to have the impact that we expect, but we can uh, do as much as possible with the resources we have to try and reduce our impact. And so then, you know, that's where the kind of second part of impact is, is after the fact, once the product's released, and this kind of ties back into what we were talking about previously, where we uh, are really focused on like feedback and review systems, just so that we identify what our impacts are, and then uh, to like respond to them. And we have uh, kind of a good example of this. Um, in our hazard content, we're working on hazard specific, like a, a hazard content specific feedback option. So we don't um, want to limit users to like a general feedback. If users are experiencing a problem with a specific hazard, if they are like on the earthquakes page and they're like, hey, I really needed X information, or they're thinking, hey, like this section was ambiguous or this section was actively unhelpful to me, then we really want to know that and we really want to be able to fix that. So we're working on a lot of like uh, specific feedback systems for our product. Yeah. Right. And that's that active feedback where rather than just unleashing something and then saying, okay, we'll, we'll do, we'll empty the comment box, you know, once a year, Yeah. we're keeping that channel of communication open and flowing. And that's two main reasons. One, tech moves fast. People use this fast. And we want to stay on top of becoming the best we can as much as possible. That requires us being accountable. That requires us being open for accountability to the public and to our users. And there's a concern that comes here with this. If I admit I was wrong, are people not going to trust us? Are we going to lose money? And the answer to that is no, this is actually how you build trust and accountability. Yeah, I think most people are generally like understanding to the idea that um, no product is going to be entirely perfect. Like we're always going to be experiencing some kind of issue, uh, whether like it's understood or unforeseen. So the best way that we can develop trust and a good relationship with our users is to be as accountable as possible because when problems happen and companies are silent that's when we see a lot of backlash and that's when we see a lot of problems yeah and when we're being held accountable first and foremost rather than saying we didn't know we didn't know the harm first just saying sorry we're so sorry that any harm possible came from this that was not our intention uh and you don't you know period you don't have to explain what your intention is because at that point it doesn't matter right if you hurt if you cause any kind of harm or hurt just say sorry and then here's everything we're doing to never have this happen again and this can be tricky you can get caught up in this cycle of you know oh we didn't know we're going to get it better or eventually we'll we'll get it right um and it gets to a point where you might be taking on so much feedback that you may feel overwhelmed because your product wasn't 100%. The empowering takeaway is that no product is going to be entirely perfect. So the best way we can ensure a great product design is to be really receptive and really active in terms of 
feedback and redesigns. Absolutely. And we're going to dive deeper into that, those design considerations in some of the upcoming podcasts with our Hazard App designer, Maria. So excited to have her on this podcast and hear her design mind. This is Jenny. This is Josh. Signing out with your reminder. Uh, make sure you're opening presents with gloves or you might hurt someone you love. As we're all adapting here. That's right. <laughs>